0: Hello guys and welcome back to another episode of Spill the Murder. So before we head into the next two cases, I just wanted to like talk about something. Um I'm recently like I'm not really recent, it's like way, way too like in the midst during the pandemic of twenty twenty. I started to get into true crime, we also started getting into a deep dive but also comedy. Like, comedy is, like, really fucking hilarious, I'm being honest, because it makes me laugh to the point where, like, I have to literally go use the bathroom. Um, because recently I, not fairly recently, but months ago, like, about two months ago at least, like, in November-ish, like, November-ish, October-ish, I was watching, um, he's an actor and a comedian, and he's funny, um, forgot his name, but he made a Netflix special called Baby J, um, and it's so cute, it's, like, so funny and cute, um, and he plays in Big Mouth, he plays, um, one of the main protagonists in Big Mouth, I forgot, but, like, um, yeah, he made a Netflix comedy, like, like, big show for, like, an hour or so, and and he was going on a tangent and, and talking, and it's funny, and recently today, I was watching the, I think it was 2022 or 2023 of um, Nick Kroll's um, Netflix special, um, I forgot the name of that one, too, um, but not the name of him, but Nick Rull. and it was funny, because he was talking about babes, talking about how <laughs> his first time he said, I love you, and everything, and the first time becoming a parent, because one of the audience members, he was like, um, how old are your parents, and he was like, um, how old are you, and she's like, 21, and like, then you're, f- and like, and how old is he now, like, your dad, and he's like, 16, he goes like, also, maybe yeah, when he had you when you were forty, when he was in his forties and went on. And he was like, he's like, kind of like maybe, and like, 40's a good age. Forty is a good age because he's like in his early forties, like early to late forties. Nick roll and that uh, stuff, and he's going on tangents like how I am about comedy. And um, the my favorite ones are oh, there you go, John Mulaney. John Mulaney did a segment called Baby J. And, um, John Belen is fucking funny, um, but recently I get into this guy, he's like a native New Yorker, and he was born and raised in Bushwick, woohoo, shout out to Bushwick people, um, in New York and and Brooklyn, and he has like this thick Italian accent, and I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't, (laughs) I can't, I can't with people. Because the thick accents of Italian people, I can't. It makes me laugh. The way they say coffee is funny. I know it's a speech impediment, but, like, I can't. It's it's just a hilariousness. I can't take it. And then we... <laughs> and then they say, like, uh, other certain words, like coffee. We say coffee, like, like, regular people, coffee. But them Brooklyn people, native New Yorker Brooklyn people, like Bushwick, Williamsburg, they say coffee. And then... <laughs> They say they don't say dollar. They say dola. <laughs> it's funny, and they they say other certain words that are funny too. I just think it's funny. Nobody else in the world that's normal thinks it's funny about about this. Nobody, and it's just me because I'm an idiot. But <laughs> yeah, I say I'm an idiot as a joke, but not literally. But like I'm an, I'm just an idiot. But anyway, yeah, I was watching that, and one time he was like watching Nick Kroll today and watching Hasan Minhaj, which another one if you don't know who I'm talking about you should go watch the Patriot Act and also watch Hasan Minhaj's the, like the King's Jester and then and the other one from his 2017 one I was watching that one a little bit and that one was like in, in California he'd done and then the other one was like in Brooklyn he'd done so and Hasan Minhaj was funny too but like The gestures one really pulled my heartstrings because it was talking about when he did his segment, The Patriot Act and shit, he was doing it, like, one of the episodes on Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia is a touchy subject for certain people and certain people, like, Southeast Asian people and stuff like that. But I'm not going to really get much into that because, like, Saudi Arabia, like, you shouldn't be talking about it. And this was really at the highlight of when that reporter and journalist was murdered in the saudi arabia consulate and hassan minaj was talking about it and he was kind of like blaming nbs which is the kind of like the the ruler if you call it and he was making fun of him and then he was like you know it'd be funny telling his wife like maybe i should interview the saudi like the saudis and then his wife is her like his wife's name is bina and she's like no you do not want to mess with the saudis she's like do not do it do not so then what he does after he's like and she he goes like and she leaves she walks out of the room that's the worst thing she kind of like the worst thing that she could ever do was walk out of the room and, and like let me go to the saudi consulate in washington dc so that's what happens he goes to washington dc goes to the saudis because he dms the saudis Like the officials, the higher-ups, and he gets an interview, but the thing is, one of the producers of the show, Patriot Act, goes with him, and he goes, do not make a joke out of this, do not make a joke out of this, but, like, do not make jokes while you're there, so he goes and he he sits down with one of the officials, but not the official MBS from Saudi, not the leader of Saudi, he sits with, like, um, kinda like his constituents that kinda tell him what he shouldn't shouldn't be doing as the ruler and stuff. And he was like why do you want to interview MBS? And then he, <laughs> he goes, Well it this thing is and then he explains it and his sh- and his like talk show and it's funny. And um the thing is he was badgered like after his one segment of like after his tangent on Saudi Arabia and the consulate and and the reporters and stuff not on that time when he was doing his Patriot show, like, it was the talk of the news from Hasan Minaj. like, Washington posted it, CNN did it, even CNN he, he made a joke about CNN on that, on that um, Netflix special saying, like, and CNN got their facts right for the first time and I was laughing because I was like doesn't every news station get their facts right? Because they have their sources. But, um, yeah. He. Oh God. They, he'd never gotten to interview MBS, the, the leader of Saudi Arabia. He was, like, shown the way out of the consulate, and he never got to interview them. But after when that aired, he goes. And they told they told Hassan Menashe that they'll be watching him. And so they did, and they. Followed through what they said. They watched that segment of. Hassan Minaj's. Saudi Arabia one. on Like Saudi Arabia episode on. A, like Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act. And they banned that episode. From ever being in Saudi Arabia. And. Um, he wasn't sued. But at the time. He had a daughter. And so everything was coming. Into close hand. And um his wife never found out about it though because after that after that one close encounter to mbs literally on the news was about the consulate murder of the reporter and journalist on the news and his wife bina's like did you hear what happened after from the saudis it's a good thing you didn't go and then everyone's like laughing <laughs> and everyone's laughing like um he's like yeah it's a good thing I didn't go to, to the consulate, yeah, and talk to the Saudis. And and, <laughs> and uh, I was laughing because I was like, yeah, you do not want to mess with them. And, like, he was like, yeah, you don't, he, he was basically like, yeah, you don't want to mess with those people. And so, with that being said, um, next thing you know, he's at one of these like 100 influencers event because one of them was going to be a Saudi Arabia activist woman that was protesting her rights to drive a car because in saudi arabia women cannot drive cars it's only men and that's really sexist but she was supposed to be there tonight and that's why there was one chair missing next to Salman minaj and he she like he not she but he asked her like asked the people like who was supposed to be sitting next to me and they said it was supposed to be this saudi arabian girl that was an activist for women in saudi driving being able to drive and she got arrested and she's being held and she couldn't be able to attend and then so one of the people that was like kind of like with the president sort of and they were saudi arabia mbs was buddy buddy with this guy from the u.s that is like a correspondent or something like that like a like like a politician and they were whatsapp buddies and he said it on his what on like his segment saying like these people were whatsapp buddies and he came through the door at this event and sat by the table next to mine so what i said as a speech saying that if somebody in this room that's buddy buddy could be able to message mbs and say this this and that and then he made it as a joke without not for real, but he was kind of hinting at that person to message MBS, the leader of Saudi Arabia, to do something about this. Um, the guy made a face, and he was fucking blasted on the fucking social media everywhere. And everyone put him on a full blast, and it was a whole spiel. And he asked one of the audience members, he's like, what is the most likes you've ever gotten on a post? And he goes like, Eighty-nine, And he goes like, 80-fucking-nine? Like, that's just crazy. And I got, like, this much of that life about this one. Um, everyone just starts laughing and both of them. Even the guy that he asked was laughing. And um, at one point, when he lived in New York with his wife, Bina, and his daughter, he got mail after walking with his daughter in a stroller. It was just him and his daughter. And she was, like, fairly young, like, maybe, like, two-ish and stuff. So mail comes in. Like his his doorman goes like, Hey Hassan, you have mail and you got fan mail and he goes like, Oh, okay, cool He was like, Yes, I'm famous kinda like sort of face and then he opens the mail and white powder comes out of it and it lands on his daughter's shoulder. So once his wife got word of this, they took her to the hospital, to the emergency room and like him and Bina are not even talking. They're just kind of like worried and shit's about to go down. So they're not talking. And so, um, all he wanted out of this was clout. So, um, yeah. And being as it may, clout is clout, but clout can be dangerous to the point where that can happen to your own family. So being that, as that happened, nothing really bad happened to their daughter so they were like thank god so after when like they got home well like not after but before they got home him and vina were talking and they were like son this has got to stop this nonsense that you're doing has to stop i know you're comedian i know you're funny you're comical and hilarious but this has got to stop because what happens if one day it gets your family hurt Or god forbid hurts your daughter and your wife what happens then what can you do what is your line and for that he did not answer that one because he was stumped so come years later when that incident happens at that 100 influencer event and then again he's being put in from clout with everyone and everyone's putting on a full blast CNN Washington Post New York Post all this shit and then the next thing you know happens is that again his doorman hands him fan mail again. he goes like no 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 you open it like you open it he's like I'm not gonna open it this time you open it so then what he does the doorman opens it and this time it was not anything to do with the white powdery substance it had to do with something that was like I don't know how to word it it, it, it was a lawsuit because of something he said on one of his short segments on Instagram about like one of his one of his daughter's son's dad's boss saying that he loves pedophiles because one of these companies that this so-called dad's boss works for used these kind of like the the money that he was extorting from people not extorting but like using from other people instead of putting into good use, he bought sixteen mansions and one of these mansions lived a few houses down from Jeffrey Epstein, the man that kinda sold women for profit. And everyone in the crowd was like Ooh, like fuck, you're fucked. So then he wanted he wanted to put every billboard across states and saying that this boss guy is a pedophile like he loves pedophiles saying that this guy loves pedophiles and the lawyer that's in correspondent with Netflix said to call Hassan saying no Hassan we cannot do that even though this is hilariously funny like this is wait even though he said like this is not funny this can cause us damage and this has caused us issues and Hassan was like You don't know what's funny. He goes, like, I know, but, like, this can cause you and I problems, and we do not want that. So we need to take these down, and we need to do something better. And he goes, like, oh, and and then Hassan's, like, I have something better. Why don't I put it in one of my talk series, talk shows, and say this, that this is not what I'm saying. This is not what I'm saying about this man. He is not this. And all of a sudden, he gets that lawsuit in the mail. From that particular boss saying we're suing you for saying this and then the lawyer from Netflix claps back saying all sorts of funny comical jokes saying like if you want us if you want to hear Hasan Minhaj saying we're not 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 saying that he's a, he loves pedophiles or that he's best friends with a pedophile and when he showed his wife Bina this Bina was like this is a good letter But I'm not scared of good letters. I'm scared of the outcome of a bad letter. And you know what he says to his wife Bina? He says, he says, remember when you asked me what was my line years ago? I know it was my line. I can do jokes to the point, but I'm not like to the point of it's funny, but I'm not gonna take it to the point to its extremities where it will hurt my family. I love my family like I am not going to take the joke too far to that extent will hurt and damage us as a family because at the time when that water powdery substance happened as uh, his daughter and took them to the emergency room the thing was is that she said I am not going to handle this anymore with this clout nonsense if you don't stop with this nonsense right now I am not I'm not going to have trouble with taking the kids and leaving you That's what she said. She gave him like an ultimatum, like if you don't stop this shit, we're leaving. Like me and the kids are leaving. He goes, kids? Like what kids? We have like one, basically. And she goes, like I'm pregnant. And they had another baby, whether it was another girl or a boy. But that point was, it's like we don't want you endangering our family if this thing is going to escalate to this far. So we need you to, to stop with this clout and stop putting clout upon our family because if you do, these extremities are going to happen to us, and we don't want it to further escalate to that. So that happened, and then he took it into consideration because he didn't want to hurt his family. He didn't. So what he did, and, and everyone thought this was funny, was like, "I did what every white male father would do: buy your daughter's happiness." <laughs> and then, so he, so he goes the next day after was the scholastic book fair and he was like everyone knows what the scholastic book fair was and i was dying profusely because i knew what scholastic book fairs were because i remembered and i know i'm a thief for saying this but one of my friends valentina she loved sean mendez and there was this book about sean mendez and me and my friend jada were like we don't have any money so what we're gonna do is we're gonna stuff this book into our backpacks and I'll take it to Valentina. So technically I had my backpack and Jada secret was like, mm, this book is interesting. We kind of just took it and we just put it <laughs> in my backpack. So I'm technically essentially a thief. And then this other time too, there's another story too. And I laughed because I was so young. I was like, what, 13? Yeah, that's so young. <laughs> but, but going dating back, I think when I was nine or eight years old. So let's say 20, 2012. 2012, I was 9. Um, at one point, um, we went to Target, me and my whole family, like me, my dad, my mom. And so, I got a hold of the movie Princess Bride. Like, they had DVDs at the time. Yes, this was the old time, 2012. Woohoo! But anyway, uh, way before my brother was born. I think my brother was born. I don't know. I forgot. But this is what I remember. I remember distinctly because back in every movie at Target, or anywhere for that matter, there is a security barcode thing that's like covered in black, but in the, underneath it is in plastic, underneath is a gray like floppy thing in it, and what I did was so stupid because my mom says I eat everything, but not essentially everything, everything, she meant like everything inside like rubber, or plastic, I know it's gross, but that was like me as a kid, so <coughs> I'm laughing at this part. So I took that barcode because that's the security thing. So if you steal a movie, it will beep. So I took it and ate that. And I'm like, come to think of it. I remember eating something like that. (laughs) And so my parents are ringing up the products that they bought, like milk, eggs, bananas, mac and cheese, chips, all this mumbo jumbo, right? And so, we're, I have the movie in my hands and my mom's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. I'm going to put it back. I'm going um, to put it down soon. And we were like, yeah, because we're leaving soon because they're bagging everything. And then so we're leaving and we're waiting and we're outside past the security bar thing behind the glass mirror. And I'm still holding that damn movie in my hand the princess bride movie is in my hand and mind you this movie is like way in the 2000s like way back way back like in the early 2000s and i still had it in my hand my mom's like dad didn't you say you were gonna put that down and i said yeah why you haven't you put it down and i was like well it didn't beep." be was like and how much was this i don't know i don't know how much it was well at least you got it for free and i was like yeah i was like well next time don't do that don't steal i was like i know i'm sorry but at the same time like oh my god i got away with something and nobody noticed and nobody took a photo of me from the security cameras and posted it on the wall saying this person is dangerous to the world <laughs> this little girl is dangerous to the world i'm tearing up as i'm talking about this oh my god um because it's hilariously funny those were the times where like i essentially stole but i never stole from friends i never stole from my friends from their houses and took their diaries and wrote in it i never did that because that's not me and that's not my property but if it was like at a store or something like uh, an asian st- like not an asian store not to sound racist but like then you're store or like um because you can't you can't steal from duncan you can't it's impossible to steal from duncan they have security cameras everywhere you can't steal from duncan i never stole from duncan i would either use Sorry, excuse me. Um, my credit card through the app, or I would use a um, gift card through the app and pay through it. And that's how I would get my breakfast to work. I would always get two, two sausage, egg, and cheese on croissants. Oh, and hash brown sometimes. Sometimes, not all the time. Or sometimes I'll get, like, an apple fritter or, like, something that's so sweet. But then sometimes I'll get... I'll get too much shit from Duncan, and put in my red bag, my red big, big long chimp bag, and I'm like, what the fuck am I carrying? <laughs> I'm like, it's not even funny. But yeah, it's like the whole moral of everything. Like I'm myself. I think I'm hilariously funny, just myself. But no one else thinks I'm funny. Wait, no one says, oh my god, you're so funny. Like it's so hilarious. It makes me laugh. Like stop. Like it's making me laugh. Like it's so funny. Like, nobody says that. (laughs) Nobody. And I think at one point when I was watching the Nick Kroll one today, um, the one from 2022, he was like, yeah, I started, I wanted to quit smoking. So I got a hypnotist, and everyone's like, and he's like, shut up. Uh, Just onions. Like, yeah, I got a hypnotist, and, and someone hypnotized me to the point where, like, I stopped smoking. And I haven't smoked since. But the thing I'm most addicted to now is, snacks and everyone's like just dying laughing because that's the most odd addiction everyone could ever have like snacks like i know my addiction but i'm not gonna say it but like because weird and um he was also hypnotized to stop eating snacks too because he's overly obsessed with snacks like teddy graham all that stuff like oh teddy graham was like the basis of my childhood if you don't recall and gushers, and fruit roll-ups, but nowadays, people just use fruit roll-ups for, like, awesome entertainment, like, at one point, I saw a TikTok where people were using fruit roll-ups and ice cream, mixing it together to make this awesome little spherical ball, what, and eating it, and it makes a crunchy sound, what, it's like a small dollop, just like a dollop of daisy sour cream, and then you just roll it up, and then you hear as you're eating it, I'm like, what? The I'm like, what the fuck? But yeah, that was the moral of the story. But then also, again, Nick Kroll was talking about another thing, <laughs> where he was talking about as I was trying to quit, I wanted to try vaping and everything. But like, I see you guys trying to hide it, like you guys are embarrassed of vaping. You guys go oh. like and they guys are trying to hide I see you hiding that tiny little robot dick that's what he was saying I'm dying <laughs> he was like that is so true everyone that vapes that I knew that vaped would try and hide it like they're embarrassed of fucking vaping around their friends I knew this one girl but I didn't know her by name I would see her at the little park by my high school across the street like literally down the block across the street It'll be, like, across the street from our and then down the block and then, like, across the street where, like, the bikers ride in New York. And she was the only teenager that I recall would smoke fucking cigarettes. I'm like, does this girl not have lung problems? Does this girl not have fucking lung problems? Because everyone in our society that's an adult that's 36. Or 50 years old have lung problems because, or lung cancer because they were vaping since they were teenagers. And now this one's vaping, not vaping, smoking cigarettes like they're, like she was a teenager. And now she doesn't smoke cigarettes until she's fucking 50 years old and then she's gonna, what, have lung cancer now? Like, is that, is that what we're gonna do? Is that what we're gonna do? Like, us teenagers, 16 years old, gonna be smoking cigs? Uh-uh. Uh Uh-uh. This is why I stay away from cigarettes. I never smoked marijuana. I'm not going to do so because why. I never even tried edibles. Not even edible brownies. I always wanted to, but I'm like, nah, man. But also, vaping, I tried. I'm a big fan of it. But not a fan of smoking cigs. Uh Uh-uh. Or chewing tobacco. Uh Uh-uh. Because I know Copenhagen, and I know Red Seal... Um, I forgot there's another one there's an, there are many products of chewing tobacco but I don't like it I'm not a big fan nope but yeah that's the moral of the story of, of like what I've been recently been doing like recently, recently. besides the fact that I started now doing on uh, my private very private like snapchat stories like instead of like having a discussion like I normally do my snapchat stories I would normally, I'm now going to be doing like Kind of like updates on crime and stuff like the gilligo beach and um shonda vanda arc and what i've been currently doing on my um podcast like this one but yeah that's what i have recently been doing because i'm like i'm not even really talking about my life yet because that's what i used to do in my life have a conversation private story because i was like my first one but I started doing like singing ones and stuff on there. And everyone's like, you should do a separate one, a separate private story. Because everyone would love that. Like totally. Just like how everyone in my grade loved the fact that I made a, like made a chat with everyone in my grade. So we can all chat. And then suddenly all of a sudden we say something fucking stupid for them to drift apart. <laughs> Have you guys never heard the radio station Hot 97? Congratulations. You played yourself, that's exactly what I did, I played myself, because <laughs> y'all left me in my group chat of the seniors in our grade, y'all left me, out of people, and then left me because I said something stupid about something, and then y'all left me for it, because you thought what I said was stupid, and you guys didn't let me hear me out, so not my fault, you guys don't want to hang out with me, you want to talk to me, because... I'm the best that you can buy for, and I'm the best person you could ever talk to through Snapchat. Just saying. You missed out. But anyways, going back to our true crime um, stuff, because sometimes we all need to kind of like degrade from the gruesome and the gaudy stuff. Gaudy meaning ugly. <laughs> um, ugly stuff from true crime. Because sometimes true crime can be a lot on some people, and some people just you need know, to just stress and you need know, to watch something that's hilariously funny, like someone slipping on a banana peel, or just someone talking, talking about bathing and talking it being like it's like a small dick, and it's funny, to me. But now we're gonna, t- I'm gonna talk about chapter six and chapter seven. Take, um, chapter six is the Coper Glutch killer and then the other one chapter seven it's called taking a chance so without further ado let's start so basically what the author sings says i don't usually cover unsolved cases and True gun case histories series but i came across this story of the murder of candace hilts it was just too engrossing to pass up though it's officially unsolved there's plenty of su- suspicion and speculation so Kenneth Hiltz was raised in a remote area of Glutch, Colorado, an extremely rural area just a few like a few hours south of Denver. Though she was a small-town girl, every sense she was exceedingly intelligent. By the age of 11, she was performing calculus, and by 17, when most of her friends were in high school, Kenneth was already in her third year of, of a, like an online degree in Bridgeham Young University. She dreamed of being a lawyer and was awarded a scholarship to Stanford Law School, which is very prestigious, might I say. But when she found herself pregnant at 16, she began to rethink the idea of going away for school. To make matters worse, her baby Paige was born with hydro a disorder that causes an abnormal buildup in, of fluid in the, bra- in the brain. Because Paige's life life's expectancy wasn't long, Candace knew her time with her daughter would be limited. Stanford would have to wait. Candace was an outspoken young girl with a firm sense of of right and wrong, which is probably why she wanted to be a lawyer. She could be very well confrontational, and if she witnessed bullies or someone breaking the law, she had no problem speaking her mind, which I can say to that sense is like, kind of like in between of a troublemaker and a good person. So, anyway, Candace's brother, Jimmy, was nothing like her. He was somber and quiet young man. And when, his, when their father died, he struggled to cope with the loss. Jimmy fell into a world of drugs, alcohol, and suffered, suffered with deep depression. He sank so low that he couldn't hold a conversation of more than a few sentences. Over time, Jimmy withdrew from the family, unable to communicate with anyone at all he packed a backpack and a tent and lived in the enormous wooded area of colorado and his town in the summer of 2006 candace and her and her mother dolores were driving toward their home on Coper Glutch road when they passed two vehicles parked on the side of the rural road candace recognized both vehicles one was a local sheriff vehicle of the officer who was rumored to be corrupt, and the other was a well-known meth cook, a producer of methamphetamine drugs in the area. As they passed the vehicles, Candace and her mother both witnessed the drugs cooking, like the drugs cook handling the sheriff's deputy a thick envelope, and in Candace's opinion, it was clear that a payoff or some sort of bribe was taking place. Candace was livid when she saw this, but with no proof, there was nothing she could do. A few days later, in early August, There was a knock at the door of the Holtz home. Dolores answered the door, and it was the the same sheriff's deputy, and he was looking for Jimmy. The deputy told her that they believed Jimmy had been breaking in and burglarizing homes in the area. The accusation upset Dolores. She explained that Jimmy lived in the hills behind their home and had severe mental problems. They could never break into their people's homes because of his condition. Jimmy had been in and out of Colorado Mental Health Institute for for severe social phobia and anxiety. She told the officer that Jimmy could barely speak to people and could never deal with that kind of confrontation. It was impossible that he could have have been breaking into homes. And when the deputy called Dolores a damned liar, Candace overheard and ran to the door in rage. And she screamed at the deputy who told her that if she didn't come down, he would arrest her. Candace reacted by ha- holding out her f- wrist in front of her and yelled, Go ahead! i will scream at the top of my lungs. What the hell are you going to do taking envelopes from the drug cooks up there? Like, up here. The deputy was furious, but speechless. He was angrily turned He angrily turned and strung back to his vehicle and drove away. Later that week, the family dog Jackson went missing. Jackson was a, was a house dog, and it was rare that he got outside unattended. On one occasion, he did get out, and he wouldn't venture far from the house. Candace and her her mother called and searched for the dog all day, but Jackson was nowhere to be found. When several days had passed and Jackson hadn't returned, they assumed that the mountain lion, which was common in the area, had probably attacked him. Five days after Jackson had gone missing, Dolores drove down into town to run some errands and left Candace alone in the house to look after Paige. That afternoon, around 2.30 p.m., well, 2.20, well, 3.20 p.m., correction, Dol- Dolores arrived home to find someone had broken the back door and she could hear Paige crying in one of the bedrooms. As she walked into the hallway, she knew something was dreadfully wrong. There was blood all over the hallway. And as she entered the first bedroom, she saw that Paige was in her crib, crying, but at least safe. Dolores then ran further down the hallway into Candace's room. There was blood pooling on the floor, When initially she didn't see any sign of Candace, it was then that she noticed that the bed was slightly angled and raised at one end. Underneath the bed, it looked like if someone had shoved a large green quilt under the bed, causing the inclination of the bed. But when she tugged at the quilt, she soon realized the disturbing truth. Candace had been shot point-blank in the face, head and chest, and rolled into the quilt and callously stuffed beneath the bed. A gunshot shell was found in front of the fireplace in the living room. Just days after accusing a Fourmont County Sheriff's Deputy of taking bribes, the Farmont County Sheriff's Office was now in charge of investigating Candace's murder. Two detectives were assigned to the case, Detective Harry Sharp and lead detective Robert Dodd. Dolores was questioned only briefly and it seemed that her and Dodd really didn't have an interest in what she had to say it was evident that he had already suspected the murder like the murderer her son jimmy hiltz police quickly developed their theory they believed that jimmy had broken into the back door of the house intending to kill his sister one of the houses that that suspected that they suspected jimmy of breaking into previously was missing a shotgun and they believed that he shot candace with that gun and then stuffed her beneath the bed and fled. Dolores knew that their assumptions were absurd. Jimmy was just not the type to go on a rampage like that. He loved his sister and had no reason to kill her. In any case, Jimmy wouldn't have have needed to break down the door. He had his own key and would come and go anytime he liked. Despite her contention, police started a multi-agency search for Jimmy Holtz for the murder of his sister, Candace search teams canvassed the endless acres around the home around five days of searching police found the family dog jackson dead with the leash still attached to his collar he had been missing for over a week and from the amount of decomposition it was clear someone had killed jackson not long after he had been gone missing detectives assumed that someone had removed the dog from the house so that the killer could more easily get into the house to kill Candace. this made the murder premeditated to dolores it assured her that, like even further, that this was not the work of Jimmy. Jimmy loved the dog and would have no reason to have killed him. Three days after they found the dog, police found Jimmy Holtz camping in the woods. He was unarmed and had no idea police had been looking for him. Detectives spent days interrogating Jimmy, but he refused to confess the murder or the string of burglaries they had accused him of. Detectives Dodd and Sharp had no physical evidence against Jimmy, and without DNA ballistics or blood evidence, they had no reason other than their own hunch to charge him. Jimmy was charged with burglary, but was eventually deemed insane and unable to defend himself. He was admitted back to the Colorado Mental Health Institute for indeterminate amount of time until he was mentally stable enough to stand trial. The fact that he was mentally ill only furthered the detective's belief that he was the killer. Dolores, however, knew that wasn't true and was worried that his mental illness and the pressure of the accusations would drive him to consider suicide. Years passed by and no other suspects emerged. The case remained open but no additional investigation was ever done on the case. Seven years after Candace's murder, Paige died from complications of her disease. When a person runs a storage unit and fails to pay the rent, the contents of the unit go up for auction. Without knowing what's inside, everyone's interested like everyone who's interested on like can bid on the contents hoping that whatever's inside is worth and more than what they paid for 10 years after the murder ricky rats lift att- attended an auction for the abandoned storage unit in canyon city colorado with a bid of only 80 dollars rick run the auction and clipped the lock off of the unit as Rick rummaged through the contents of the storage unit, he was puzzled to find an envelope marked evidence. When he picked up the paper envelope, a small axe dropped through the bottom of the deteriorating bag. Another bag marked evidence contained a rope. Both the rope and axe were still covered in blood. Inside the storage unit, Rick also found a box full of old police uniforms. When he held up one of the uniforms he noticed the name sewed on it red dog rick knew the name and realized he had purchased detective robert dodd's abandoned unit he had remembered his name from hearing the news reports of candace's murder 10 years prior astonished as to why the highest ranking detective in farmont county sheriff's office would have a crime scene evidence in a personal storage locker rick handed the evidence over to the colorado bureau of investigation the cbi verified that the items were indeed evidence from the Kenneth Heltz murder investigation detective dodd claimed that he stored the items intending to be taken additional photos of them but slipped but it slipped his mind of course it did why wouldn't he like hold off on it from seven years later after her murder and then realize oh fuck i forgot i had i had um additional evidence in my storage locker and I forgot to take pictures of them. It's totally slipped my mind. When the story of the recovered evidence hit the local news, public pressure on the sheriff's office mounted and in, in January 2017, Robert Dodd was put on paid administrative leave. The public also demanded more answers as to why there was never been charges brought against anyone for the murder. Because of the media pressure, police finally released the pathology report on Candace's murder. The general assumption of the media and the public had been what the police had told them, that Jimmy Hilts had murdered his sister, but they still could not stand trial due to his mental illness. But when the autopsy findings were released, public opinion quickly turned away from the assumption. The autopsy showed that Candace had been killed with three separate weapons. She had been shot point blank in the face with a shotgun. Then she was shot five times in the back of the head with a 22 caliber rifle lastly she was shot in the chest directly through the heart with a medium caliber handgun astonishingly and fairmont county sheriff's office stuck by their theory that the murder was pulled up by jimmy alone despite the physical evidence pointing toward him robert dodd uh, succumbed to the pressure of the media and going in public uh, accusations and decided to move to texas where he was packing to move and he had asked for a small dumpster to be parked in the driveway in the front of his home so he could throw away the things he didn't want to move and after he had filled the dumpster he called penrose landfill to come pick up and take it away rob orton was the employee at penrose landfill and and was and was charged picking up the dumpster from dodd's property knowing dodd's notoriety Rob was curious of the contents of the dumpster. When he got it to the landfill and dumped it, he noticed some strange items amongst the garbage. Not only did Doug not go through the proper chain of evidence when he put the items in his personal storage locker, but he also brought items home and later dumped them in his garage. Rob called a local reporter who had been covering the story and invited her to the landfill to go through the evidence before they called the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, CBI. Together, Rob and the reporter took photos of the items and Dodd had uh, thrown away. They found a toolbox marked "Forensic Kit," FSCO Crime Scene Unit, assorted evidence DVDs, and the Fiasco, well, Fisco laptop computer, and more than 20 V-A- VHS tapes labeled "Sexual Assault Evidence." There was also envelopes full of sexual assault statements taken from victims, and many of the statements were from children who had drawn pictures of their attackers in crayon. Dodd had determined that this evidence that it could be thrown in a trash. It surely seemed that Robert Dodd had something to hide. In May, 2017, he was charged with official misconduct. At Robert Dodd's trial, it was revealed that just days after Candace Holt's murder evidence was found in the storage locker, Dodd had it logged in the official computer archive report of the murder and edited six times. He had deliberately altered the case file with false information. It was also revealed at trial that some evidence from the storage locker pointed to the additional person of interest in Kenneth's murder. The person of interest, however, was never revealed. Even if the person of interest had been revealed, the evidence would never been tested for DNA and because of the degradation was now useless. Dodd's evidence, well, Dodd's defense, claimed that the sheriff's office had no specific policies, or procedures for the handling of evidence, and in July 2019, Robert Dodd was found guilty of two counts of official misconduct and abuse of public record. He was sentenced to a $1,000 fine and 15 days of incarceration, but never spent a day in jail. Because of this case and several others, 11 additional officers within the Fairmont County Sheriff's Office were placed on administrative leave. 12 years after her death, no one had been charged with Kenneth's murder and Jimmy Hilts is still a patient at Colorado Mental Health Institute he also works there as a counselor for other patients and that my friends is the story of the copper glutch murder well killer in this case it's like crazy to think that in this in this case before um we heard into chapter 7 was like unsolved and nobody fucking solved this case like for real it's crazy that no one had bothered to like figure it out who solved it because honestly I don't think it's the brother I don't really believe it was the brother at all because the brother had mental problems like I know mental people like people with mental issues and, and stuff like would kind of do this sort of thing but I don't think he did because again he lived behind the house in the woods in a tent like how would he do so if he had meant he had a mental struggle within himself to be able to do so and pull all these fucking in-house robberies like why would he do that upon himself like even his mother said so like why would he even do that I'm like it's preposterous but i <laughs> do believe that Robert dog was trying to cover up a murder like, he's the one who did it. Like, I certainly believe that he was the one at fault. Because, again, he's the one that has the storage locker that was sold to this innocent man from possibly the show's storage wars. And he bought it for 80 bucks. And in that storage unit was a police uniform and evidence. And, again, he was literally not caught, but he was literally, he literally threw something out in his garbage and called the land people, the landfill people, and told them to throw it in their landfill, the evidence, meanwhile, that person was smart enough, fucking smart enough, to call a reporter and report this and it's crazy that like this re- this guy literally was really smart to actually call a reporter and say hey this seems a little fishy a little odd that this detective guy decided to throw this crap out and i don't think it's crap i think it's really important pieces of evidence that i think you guys should know and you guys should really report and look really closely into this and they did and he was like um literally he was only never spent a day in his life in jail and only was guilty of two counts of office misconduct and abuse of public record and that literally constitutes to nothing in comparison to what actual murders like murderers get and you know like 60 to life 15 to life in prison 20 to life like you know why didn't he get like 15 years like i know it's mediocre that what he did was like so minuscule but like come on like the the miss uh, official misconduct and the abuse of public record could have literally just like misuse of evidence and misuse of public record of a case file and botch the whole investigation and still nobody knows who the murderer is and it's just crazy but anyway i digress i digress so we're moving on to chapter 7 taking a chance anyone in phoenix area in the late 80s or early 90s is sure to remember rock chance. Or technically Rick Chance. Rick's commercials ran continuously over every channel in for many years. His business his business Empire Glass replaced car windshields, but he did it with flair and a marketing gimmick that worked amazingly. The Desert Lands of Arizona meant lots of small rocks, tiny rocks flying on endless Phoenix freeway system, resulting in chips and cracks in mirror windshields. Rick Chance saw a massive opportunity. In 1982, he made deals with insurance companies and local restaurants to create Empire Glass. Rick was a spokesperson in his own commercials and he advertised that he could replace your windshield when it cracked a little or no cost to you and you give and give you 12 free free dinners and a nice restaurant for the truffle who's going to turn that down nobody it was a massive success so much that after two decades what started as a one-man operation had expanded to six states was ranking in $25 million a year. Rick grew up in Maricopa, Arizona, a small, like a small, tiny farming town that's south of Phoenix, and always had an entrepreneurial spirit. As a young boy, his father wanted him to follow his footsteps and encourage him to work their farm with the tractor, but Rick told his father, Dad, I don't need to do this. I am going to be a millionaire. At an early age, he lost an eye to a childhood glaucoma and wore a glass eye, but, onl- but that only seemed to empower him. Rick later in, um, laddered in baseball, football, and track at the Maricopa High School and edited the school newspaper. Rick became enormously successful at his business, but his love life was a train wreck. In January 1979, Rick married Nori and Rose. Within three months, she had filed for divorce, and she talked her out of the divorce initially. But it was destined to end. And in 1981, they divorced just before they, like before he started Empire Glass. A year later, he married Christine Gray Pylund. His marriage with Christine lasted longer and spawned two children. Rick Chance lived his life being pulled into two directions. He loved the millions that his business made for him and thrived on extravagance. He owned a multi-million dollar home in an affluent neighborhood of Paradise Valley, drove a top-of-the-line Mercedes, and despite the Arizona heat, occasionally wore a sable coat. He wore expensive jewelry and frequently went to strip clubs. On the flip side, Rick was deeply religious and could quote long Bible verses verbatim. He donated vast sums of money to charities and regularly gave money to evangelical churches as well as funding international ministries. He believed his success was directly related to his relationship with the Lord. After ten years of what seemed to be a picture perfect marriage, his relationship with Christine was in trouble. Rick met a nineteen year old prostitute at the Funison Resort who drugged him and stole seventy one thousand dollars worth of jewelry in his Mercedes. Christine filed for a divorce and shared custody of the children and moved to Denver, and in court documents she accused him of a wasteful and frivolous spending and ignoring his family, saying quote, he is frequently out of town and spends 60 hours per week at in, like, not at work, but in work and work related activities. Rick was in an extreme embarrassing legal situation involving <sighs> a prostitute, which unfortunately became front page news, end quote. Christine was an award was awarded control of Denver operation of Empire Glass, half of their Paradise Valley home, and twenty thousand dollars in like a fur coat, and her nineteen ninety one Infinity convertible. Enric was to pay for their child's pri- like their children's private religious religious school sh- like religious school tuition. Though reviewing himself as deeply spiritual, being drugged and robbed going through a rough divorce, Rick continued to flash his well and show his vulnerability. The second marriage, however, was nothing compared to the third. In 1995, Rick met a stunning great-eyed blonde named Jill Scott. Jill was a beauty queen that had won the title of Miss America in 1990. Rick married Jill on Valentine's Day in a fairytale wedding that was broadcasted live from Las Vegas on Good Morning America. Jill, however, had some secrets of her own. Like shortly after winning the Miss America title, she was sued by the pageant because she was actually separated from her husband at the time, making her ineligible for the title of Miss America. She also hid from Rick the fact that she had several plastic surgery operations, had signed a contract to star in a pornographic movie titled Miss XXX America. He filed for an annulment after only four months of marriage. Judge threw the annulment out but he filed another in nineteen ninety eight, where he described his wife as a gold digger whose goal was to divest him of his assets and leave. But Jill had no shortage of accusation against Rick. She claimed that she like she claimed that she thought she was marrying a good Christian man but found herself with a religious cook who would chant incantations and order her to read scriptures for hours while bent over face down holding her ankles in adoration for God. Quote, when I say chanting, I make you repeat a prayer over and over again, or a phrase of his own over and over again. She claimed that Rick once received a complaint letter from a customer and screamed, "This is from Satan," and then ripped it up and threw it on the f- on the fire and started chanting. She also spoke on an unusual sexual demands that Rick would ask for, claiming she once walked in on him in their bedroom with another man, both naked with towels wrapped around their waist. She recalled saying, "Quote." He seemed to be battling his inner demons, his desires were strong, and went against his spiritual life." By the time the divorce number three was over in 1988, Jill was awarded $250,000 in jewelry and $8,333 per month for four years. Though Empire Glass was still making him millions, Rick was getting bored with the glass business and his real passion w- had become jewelry and he was determined to make his next fortune as a jewelry dealer a tight group of dealers operated the jewelry circuit in the phoenix area and rick had some trouble jumping gem- into an already established industry he sold his expensive jewelry to local dealers and low-end jewelry he would sell through newspaper ads rick would buy a wholesale from dealers and middlemen and then turn them around selling them as his own designs, but his favorite jewelry he couldn't design himself, Rolex watches, and raw diamonds. Despite three failed marriages and being robbed, my apologies if you hear yelling and screaming, that's a sibling that's yelling and screaming to his friends like like a lunatic and a maniac that belongs in a mental hospital. Um... Despite three failed marriages and being robbed, Rick was still overly trusting of people who would often carry a briefcase full of jewelry with him to show clients in public places. A friend, David Hans Schmidt, recalled their evening in the cigar bar of Ritz Carlton in Phoenix, saying, quote, We were drinking clumbard liquor at $9.50 a pop until it was coming out of our ears. I got up to go to the bathroom, and I swear... I came back, and there's Rick's briefcase open on the table, and there's half a million dollars worth of jewelry, like, worth of jewels, sitting there. He's at a bar, talking to some bimbo. End quote. Rick was was very trusting of everyone, and whenever friends warned him of showing off valuables in public, that, like that, would make a target, and and he would scoff, saying, "Eh, it's all insured." But one friend recalled telling him, "Yes, but insured isn't going to cover your ass." Rick and Schmidt had would frequent the strip clubs at Phoenix together, and Rick would pay sixty, like six hundred dollars fee for the two of them to go to the VIP champagne room with the girl of their choice. One of their favorite strip clubs was. Christie Cabaret at 32nd Street and Rick preferred Asian girls, and Christie's was where Rick met Brandy Huggerford. Brandy Huggerford was born in South Korea in 1977 and adopted by an American family when she was only a few weeks old. She grew up in the typical Midwest setting in the Grand Rapids, Michigan, with eight brothers and sisters. In 1995, Brandy moved to Tampa Tampe, Arizona, with the intention of attending Arizona State University, but before she got a chance to enroll, she saw an ad in the paper reading Looking for Models. ASU, Arizona State University, was put on the back burner when she realized she could make a thousand dollars and two hundred like a thousand two hundred dollars a week as an escort. Randy's father had developed cancer and much of the money she made tripping and escorting went to helping with his care and her father's illness and what she was doing for a living began to change her emotionally and according to her friends the girl that once was happy was a happy-go-lucky now kept things bottled up and she became moody and indifferent Brandy worked with full-range adults establishments in the Phoenix area and Christie's Cabaret was more high-end strip club, while Bourbon Street was a little darker and seedier. She also worked at a bikini club called Southwest Attractions, a a two-story building in an industry area near the airport with no windows. Inside, after being checked for weapons, customers chose a girl and were escorted to a private room for 30 minutes for a a like of companionship. technically, for sex. Like, who takes 30 minutes to have sex? 30 minutes to have sex is nothing. You need more than that, so I'd say an hour is good or 90 minutes is good, like an hour and a half. But if you want to go 30 minutes out of having sex with someone, go ahead. Um, the company also offered a alcohol service where a girl would meet a client in in a hotel room and their choosing, usually accompanied by a male bodyguard waiting in the car outside. Rob Lemink was a high, was a tall high school dropout from Spanaway, Washington, just south of Tacoma. He was known for his short temper, like, like his short hot temper, and his passion for guns and Asian girls. His rap sheet included felony assault, Illegal weapons, possession, and parole violation. LeMink, well, technically Rob, moved to Arizona in 1999 with his girlfriend to avoid sentencing for a weapons charge in Washington State. His girlfriend helped him buy an assault rifle since he couldn't buy one um, legally with his felony conviction. And once established in Arizona, he became a male stripper and escort. He... Was 220 pounds of muscle and became quite popular at the male strip clubs, like the Hideaway. As a male stripper, Rob was known to cross the line legally. He wanted a fast lane to wealth and was willing to get there by any means necessary that he could, legal or not. Rob started his own escort agency, which is now which is how he met Brandy Hugerford and the two started dating. Brandy had been out with Rick Chance a few times and he was very open with her about his wealth and showed her the briefcase of jewelry and he like he carried around and when she told Rob about the briefcase he instantly saw dollar signs. Rob put together a plan for him and Brandy to steal Rick's briefcase full of jewelry and put their first attempt was a failure. Rick had met Brandy for Mexican food before they went back to his house, and the plan was for Brandy to call Rob to tell him to come to his house and rob him, but Rick and Brandy had spent the evening smoking pot in a street out like three million dollar Paradise Valley home, where he when she called Rob, and she was too high and mumbled into the phone, and she couldn't remember the street he lived on through the summer of two thousand two. Brandy left Rick several messages, most of which he didn't return. Brandy and Rick, th- like Brandy and sorry, Brandy and Rob thought Rick may have become suspicious of her. The unanswered calls would later become a trail of evidence for police to use against her. In August 2002, Rick and Brandy went out a few more times and after dinner on an evening in August eighth, Brandy suggested they get a bottle and have some drinks at the West like the best western hotel in Tempe. Brandy later called Rick like later recalled saying Rick probably thought that he was gonna have sex. And after checking in at the front desk, Rick and Brandy entered room three seventeen and Rick lit a cigar when Brandy stepped into the bathroom he had no idea she was in the bathroom calling Rob to give him the room number, and when Brandy emerged from the bathroom, she told Rick that he, that she would step out into the hall to get some ice from the ice machine, and in the hallway Rob was waiting for her, he put on a, he put on a black ski mask and gloves and took her key card and entered the room with a gun in his hand. At 1.15 p.m. the following afternoon, it was well past checkout time, a maid at the West, the best western ignored the Do Not Disturb sign and entered room 317. Bad idea, lady. I, I would told the lady because probably the, the lady was Latina. Probably saying, Senora, mala idea. Rick was faced on the floor lying in a pool of blood. When police arrived, they found a single shell casing, an orange pill, white powder, and a burned stick of incense. Rick Chance had a single bullet wound in in his throat. In his pockets were his identification, credit cards, some cash, two wrapped-up condoms, and keys to his 2000 Mercedes. The briefcase was over $1 million in jewelry was missing. Forensic evidence came easily. Brandy's keycard was left in the room with her fingerprints on it. Her fingerprints were also on the hair dryer. Surveillance video showed Brandy and Rick in the parking lot at the front desk in the hallway of the third floor room. And problematic v- was a clear view of the security camera just outside their door, too. Police shared photos with the media and the calls poured in. Of the hundreds of calls that came in to the police, one was particularly useful? A call from Brandy's mother, who worked as an officer at the Maricopa County Estrella Jail. She had recognized her daughter on the local news channel and called Tempe Police. When police searched Brandy's cell phone records, it showed multiple calls to rob Lemink. And the the Tempe Police then searched Lemink's Apartment and found jewelry tags that displayed Rick's br- brands And it it wasn't difficult to ascertain that Rob was certainly from Washington State and already had a warrant out for his arrest. All law enforcement agencies came to Arizona and Canada to were alerted to be on the lookout for Brandy and Lemink. Technically, Rob, police were correct in assuming that they were running back to Washington State, and Brandy and Lemink had fled to Tacoma, where Lemink. Technically, Rob knew someone who he thought would buy the jewelry from him. Five days after the murder, Brandy was arrested in Tacoma without incident and Rob was arrested two days later and they were found with jewelry, a fur coat, a fur hat filled with more than $200,000 in cash and several guns. Brandy was charged with first degree murder and was cooperative during her interrogation She provided the murder weapon to police and fingered Rob as the the trigger man. The gun that killed Rick had been given to a friend of Rob and hidden inside a pizza box. Brandy told police that she had no idea the mink, or technically Rob, planned to kill Rick, and she said that after leaving the room, she stood in the hallway for less than a minute before she heard a loud pop. Saying, quote, I peeked around the corner and at some time I heard a pop. and It scared me. It sounded like a gunshot. End quote. A witness in the nearby room, however, con- contracted Brandy's explanation, and witnesses told police they heard her say, quote, Don't hurt him. He's not going to say anything. End quote. The witness claimed that she then looked through the hotel door peephole and saw a man standing guard. For her cooperation in implicating, Raw prosecutors offered Brandy a lesser charge for second-degree murder along with armed robbery and conspiracy charges and she accepted the offer and Brandy Hungerford was sentenced to 14 years in prison, serving part of her term at the same prison that her mother used to work. She was released in August 2016 and Rob Lemink fought extradition without success. When he was returned to tempt to face charges, he eventually pleaded guilty and was handed a life sentence. He will be eligible for parole in 2032. And ladies and gentlemen, this is all for them to gain money and gain popularity, gain money for her her father for cancer and him just to gain money to get the fuck out of the country. Not to get the fuck out, like he didn't want to be there. It seems to me he didn't want to be there. Rob didn't want to be there. He just wanted the money and just wanted to, like, you know, sell the jewelry and just, like, give her half and ca- let him have half and li- let him use that half to just split ways. It seems that they made the dating up like, a ruse. Like, kind of like a cover story. And then they would, like, you know, just take his money. Like, why couldn't they just keep him alive? I know they killed him because I don't want witnesses to see them like see him like being like threatened and taken of his jewellery. But like seriously dude, if you didn't kill him you wouldn't be having second degree murder on your hands or first degree murder on your hands instead you would have been um having two counts of robbery and weaponry charge and parole violation that's all you would have had on your record and you would spend less time in jail than you really are spending so what what goes around comes around as they say but yeah that's the end of chapter seven and the next chapter we're going to be doing is the tiger parents Chapter 8 and in Chapter 9 is Mom, I am a monster.